the scale of what's needed for this is so daunting that we need every single one of these clean technologies to be su unbelievably successful. And then we, then we might just make it. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. Welcome. Energy-dense fossil fuels have provided abundant energy for the industrialization of human civilization for hundreds of years. Now, we need to deal urgently with the impacts of this success. Progress is being made in identifying alternatives to electricity production and electrification of transportation. However, this is not the whole problem. Roughly one-third of fossil fuels are burned in high-temperature industrial materials processing, and these cannot be easily replaced with electricity. Unless we find a way to replace coal burning in the production of steel and other materials, climate change will continue to accelerate. One option for achieving the deep decarbonization we need is to burn hydrogen. Today I have the honor to welcome the co-founders of TerraPraxis, Kirsty Gogan and Eric Ingersoll. TerraPraxis is a nonprofit organization focused on action for climate and prosperity. Kirsty Gogan has more than 15 years experience as a senior advisor to government on climate and energy policy. Kirsty is managing partner of Lucid Catalyst, an international consultancy focused on multiplying and accelerating zero carbon technology options available for large scale, affordable, market based decarbonization of the global economy. Kirsty chairs the UK government's Nuclear Innovation Research and Advisory Board Cost Reduction Working Group. Kirsty also co-founded Energy for Humanity, an environmental NGO focused on large-scale deep decarbonization and energy access. Ms. Gogan, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks, Al. It's great to be here. And thank you for coming on. Eric Ingersoll is a strategic advisor and entrepreneur with deep experience in the commercialization of new energy technologies, renewables, energy storage, oil and gas, and nuclear, with a special emphasis on advanced nuclear technologies. Eric develops commercial strategies for advanced energy technologies. Eric co-founded NGO Energy Options Network, a group of technical experts working to accelerate the commercialization and deployment of alternative climate mitigation options. Eric was a member of the Renewable Energy Advisory Group of the National Commission on Energy Policy and was honored at the Obama White House as a champion of change in renewable energy. Mr. Ingersoll, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you. Kirsty, you must be very busy managing all of these organizations. Why did you decide to set up Ter TerraPraxis? Well, um, you know, I started out as sort of an, by default um, anti-nuclear as an environmentalist. And um, uh, the more I learned about nuclear energy, the more I realized that firstly, you know, almost everything I thought I knew was wrong. Uh, <laughs> and secondly, um, that actually nuclear energy um, could be a really important part of our climate um, toolkit. Um, alongside wind and solar, and that actually our chances of getting all the way to zero could be, you know, improved greatly if we were to sort of apply the same 
creativity and determination to nuclear energy as we have done really successfully for wind and solar. Mm. So, um, so I started Energy for Humanity to advocate for nuclear as a, as a climate solution. Um, and then uh, through that met Eric and have been working now with Eric for several years um, on all kinds of interesting projects, including um, our co-founding a consulting firm called Lucid Catalyst, where we produced um, many reports about uh, you know, nuclear cost drivers and so on. And we decided to, to take it to the next level um, and found Terra Praxis, um, moving away from sort of ad more generic advocacy for nuclear energy as a climate solution towards actually designing strategies um, for uh, nuclear technologies to be applied to really well-defined market opportunities um, as well as um, de designing the sort of delivery and deployment models that will enable the cost and speed and scale necessary for these technologies to become really useful um, in our in our climate efforts. Okay, so you were uh, anti-nuclear environmentalist before you started all this. Were you you know protesting on the whole deal? Right. So yeah. Wow. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. It's 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 good that you you came around. What what. What made you think about this? Was this your own research that allowed you to, to switch, or, or were you influenced by someone else? Yeah, I was given a, a, a book for as a we were given a book as a wedding present um, uh, by my now husband's um, aunt, who is great friends with um, Professor Sir David Mackay, and so she gave us a copy of his book, um, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. <laughs> uh, and I was reading this book and. And, you know, he, I don't know if you know it, but he number crunches through, you know, what it would take to, at the time, achieve the sort of 80% carbon reductions for the UK okay. using existing technology. And it became very quickly obvious that, you know, it, was, it would be infeasible to, you know, use the sort of extent of, of agricultural land and, you know, the extent of infrastructure build if you were to try to get all the way to zero across our whole economy, not just electricity, but heat and transport and industry um, just using renewables alone. Um, so that was the sort of first eye-opening thing. And, and then I was really fortunate to be invited to, um, to work in the Department for Energy and Climate Change, working on nuclear policy um, at the same time as David joined the department as the chief scientist. Um, so that's where I began, began my journey. Oh, well, and now you're, you're a leader in in nuclear uh, advocacy so that that's that's great to hear from someone who supports that i wouldn't have believed you <laughs> oh you're, you're not alone there there are others i i spoke with uh zeon lights as well who has uh, followed a similar path oh yeah uh, in the uk yeah she's great yeah yeah she's she's setting up new organizations all the time as well so Eric, your your portfolio is very broad. Looking at your your CV, uh, renewables, energy storage, fossil, and nuclear. So with this broad experience, uh, you are now focusing on nuclear as well. What what's your path to get? What was your path to get here? Were you uh, always pro nuclear, or did you come from a anti nuclear background as well? I, I was a an anti nuclear weapons protester in college and then was arrested a number of times protesting uh, particularly the development of first strike capability during the uh, the 80s mm. and I think you know I was I was sort of 
kind of a background anti-nuclear person. You know, I wasn't, I, I sort of thought of that power power applications as part of the military industrial complex. And, I think that's common. Yeah, and was, and was, you know, very interested in the sort of soft energy paths, you know, appropriate energy type um, technologies and um, became very knowledgeable about all that. I was recruited by an anti-nuclear group at one point in college to study up at nuclear reactors and be on some, you know, radio shows and stuff because I was good at understanding all the technical diagrams. But I, but I never really had, I never, I was never really involved in kind of the hardcore demonstrations against that. Um, I just sort of, I think I had a view which is quite common among people who haven't really looked into this topic, which is that, you know, it's, there's some sort of large dangers and we're not actually doing a very good job taking care of the whole nuclear fuel chain. And, you know, it's not a viable, scalable solution and, you know, yada, 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 all the kind of myths. And, and for me, there were really two things that started to happen. One was I started to be involved in a lot more large scale energy modeling, looking at, okay. you know, how are we going to actually convert our energy system from a climate perspective. I'm, I'm a little unusual in that I've been a climate activist since about 1986. Wow. Before it was popular. Before, <laughs> before it was popular, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I guess, you know, I've gone through a lot of iterations about thinking the different, the different ways that we could be thinking about solving that problem. And a lot of my work today, a lot of our work today um, at TerraPraxis and at Lucid Catalyst involves looking at the the risks to the transition. So we we spend a fair amount of time looking at solutions and what's scalable and what what are the requirements for things that could be scalable and and really meaningful in terms of rapid and and sort of economically just uh, transition. Um, and also we look at what are the challenges that we're facing, not just with renewables, but mm-hmm. but but including the challenges with renewables that we're facing, and and are we really taking those risks into account? And so, I've had kind of decades of looking at that as well. And I was I, I was involved in a very large scale startup um, as the CEO and 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 as the chief technical officer for a compressed air energy storage technology. And we saw this as a way to integrate with wind farms and really produce kind of a primary energy source for the UK, for the US that would, um, and Canada, that would be able to produce highly reliable power from these combined wind and energy storage projects. And we basically developed a vision for how to do this for the whole of North America. And that was my first example the first kind of real experience of trying to take responsibility for solving the whole energy problem. And that was the thing that led me to get honored at the Obama White House and and so forth. During the end of that company, we were basically crushed by low gas prices oh. when the fracking started and gas prices dropped from $8 to $2. All of our customers sort of went out of business and all of our projects disappeared. And that was a very kind of profound teaching about the risks hmm. of, 
of having a sort of one technology be the be the way that you're going to solve the problem. And during that time, I also got really interested in molten salt reactors and advanced nuclear, you know, which some people describe as the kind of gateway drug to nuclear energy. <laughs> so I, at that point, I, I began to explore very broadly um, the whole nuclear energy kind of solution set. And that has really led to the work that we do now on advanced deployment models and innovative applications for nuclear and um, the, the kind of the things that we're working on today. That's interesting. So you've you've worked on the energy storage uh, and renewables angle, and now you're coming around to doing nuclear. Can you give something of a balance? Like, is do you feel that the energy storage renewables is a viable pathway? Or do you think there's one is better than the other? Or what, what's what's the technical? What's your technical feel on on which way we should be going to decarbonize our economy? All the techn tech technology evangelists have a have a very rosy view of their technologies, and and almost completely ignore all the challenges to deployment. And to solve this problem, we can't just build a few plants. We can't just have a good year for installations for solar energy. We can't just sort of, yay, we built you know 10 gigawatts of wind. We're, the scale of what's needed for this is so daunting that um, we need every single one of these clean technologies to be six, unbelievably successful. And then we, then we might just make it. Mm. And we have to keep innovating because we don't have all the things, we're not commercially deploying all the things that we're gonna to need to solve this problem. So, you know, we need to do lots of solar and batteries. We need to do lots of wind farms if we can. We need to figure out how to build lots of transmission if we can. Those things are, those things are all difficult and they're all going to be gated by public acceptability and other challenges. And so we also need to repower all the coal plants with advanced nuclear heat sources and make highly deployable and low cost synthetic fuels from nuclear energy projects to allow us to export clean fuels around the world. We need to do all of that. And, and we need to do it all at a scale and speed that we have not yet demonstrated in any of these technologies. Yes, yeah, definitely. The scale of the problem is is daunting, as you as you correctly point out. Now, TerraPraxis has I've seen some reports on your website. Um, you're talking about using um, nuclear to create hydrogen uh, and transferring. You know, I've heard a lot of talk about hydrogen economy and how this is necessary can you can any, either of you give me a background on on the the case for hydrogen and and the work that you've been doing looking at this yeah well you know what um is interesting is that we uh we actually don't really talk about nuclear at all we talk about advanced heat sources and we we chose that kind of new label really intentionally in in the report that we published last year the missing link to a livable climate because when we were um, distributing the, the early drafts of the report for peer review, we found that a lot of our peer reviewers were really getting stuck on the word nuclear. Ah. You know, there's a lot of, you know, very understandable preconceptions around 
cost and schedules and a lot of the feedback we were getting was, well, you know, wait, isn't nuclear too expensive and slow to make this contribution? I don't, and, you know, they, and <laughs> actually what we're talking about is this entirely, first of all, you know, really new technology. So high temperature heat sources that are coming to market that are being commercialized this decade. So in the 2020s, we're going to see a lot of new products coming to the market that have really, you know, that un are unrecognizable from the kind of decades old gigawatt scale traditionally constructed light water reactors operating today mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know we were trying to think of an analogy and um eric you were suggesting you know it could be like a telephone like you think about a telephone from the last century and what we think of as a phone today you know a smartphone that is basically like a little computer in your in your hand that's incredibly multifunctional um you know that that is an analogy for the kind of incredible paradigm shift that we're seeing in in these new technologies coming to market and if you combine that that paradigm shift in the capability of these new technologies with really modern high volume high productivity um, manufacturing methods in world-class shipyards which are you know the sort of world's most modern and efficient and high productivity manufacturing environments in the world that are making really, really large, really complex machines already for the oil and gas sector, mm -hmm. um, then you can actually completely change the paradigm, not only for the delivery of really low cost advanced heat sources at scale, but you can also apply those heat sources to new applications. And in particular, as you said, we, we really focused on on hydrogen enabled synthetic fuels because the combination of very low cost electricity with high temperature heat a tiny environmental footprint making them you know deployable on these kind of you know platforms that you might expect to see in the oil and gas sector today with really high capacity factors delivers super cheap hydrogen i mean it's the cheapest way to make hydrogen cleanly out of all of you know the options available to us which we outline in our report okay um and the reason that we focused on the hydrogen just the final thing to say uh, rather than the traditional power sector is because when you look at all of the mainstream projections for energy consumption in mid by mid-century more than 50 percent of our energy is still coming from fossil fuels and that is largely you know because of well a few things but you know it's oil and gas are not going anywhere they're really you know these stubborn, hard-to-abate sectors of transport, heat, and industry are really tough to electrify, and therefore we need drop-in, clean, substitute fuels that are comparable in terms of cost and performance um, with the oil and the, the fossil fuels that we're used to using today if we're going to achieve the rapid switch within 29 years. It's funny think, hearing about Eric you know, working on climate 30 years ago here we are, right? We've, we've, we've emitted half of the emissions in the atmosphere today. We've emitted in the last 30 years. We've got 30 more years. We've got 29 years, actually, to turn this around. Yeah, I feel guilty about that. Um, well, we <laughs> don't we all? Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I guess, Al, I, I, would, I would just kind of amplify something that Kirsty mentioned now, which is that you asked the question about hydrogen 
And what we're really talking about is using hydrogen as an intermediate feedstock in a process to make synthetic fuels. Okay, this is so good. we're not talking about the traditional view of the hydrogen economy, which is that everybody switches all the things to use hydrogen. We're talking about industrial production of hydrogen in a process that is using it right away to make a synthetic fuel, which is much closer to what we actually use today as an energy carrier. So either ammonia, which can be used in converted diesel engines and can be used to for shipping and heavy um, truck transport and rail transport and all of these kind of very large scale diesel engines, even power generation, um, uh, it could be used in the place of LNG for gas turbines and so forth. Um, and uh, uh, synthetic hydrocarbons, which are for the kind of fit more finicky applications like um, uh, aviation fuel. And so we're really talking about making these products and the hydrogen is just something that's going on inside the refinery or inside the FPSO to make that end product, um, which, which then enables us to decarbonize kind of our existing energy uses. So, the problem that one of the big risks we see with the transition is that if you have to make everybody electrify everything, especially all the end uses, that's billions of consumer decisions that all have to go the right way, right? You can't have Al sitting in his house in, in Canada saying, well, I, I kind of like my gas heat or I'm not really sure about this heat pump or whatever, right? You Or, you know, I'm worried about what happens when it gets cold and my electric car doesn't run. like. It doesn't matter whether those are rational concerns that people have. If they have those and those delay all those end use conversions, then we do not get decarbonization. Okay, I like, I like, I like your thinking, that's good. And so we feel like many of those things are good ideas. Like I'm right now trying to evaluate um, repower, re, redoing all the heating and cooling in my house with electric heat pumps. It's a great idea. Um, it's not super easy to do, it's expensive. Um, I'm sort of fortunate that I am in a place where I can think about doing that, but I, I sort of shudder to think that that if the decarbonization effort depended on everybody going through this process that I'm going through, um, it, it's just not going to happen in time. And and that's assuming everybody even wants to do it, right? Yes. And is prepared to pay for it. We're able to pay for it, yeah, and that it's available to them. It re requires levers of of carbon taxes and all sorts of things to make those decisions or force those decisions. So this is why we feel like a a a parallel strategy, a complementary strategy, is to also decarbonize the things that people are using, so that if Al has a diesel car. He either gets an electric car and you've decarbonized the electricity system, so he's good, or you've decarbonized the diesel fuel supply with synthetic fuels, and so he's good. And either way, it works, right? And that's what we think is the low, the lower risk way to approach this decarbonization challenge. Because you're making it, you're making it transparent to the consumer, basically. Yes. That their decision doesn't affect the decarbonization. It's decarbonizing at the source of the energy. Exactly right. And that applies. That applies at the industrial scale. It applies to developing countries, emerging economies. You know, it. A drop-in substitute 
a rapid switch using ex as much of the existing storage, distribution, transport and end use infrastructure as possible to create as little disruption as possible, no, as little additional cost. If, in fact, ideally, a lower cost would be, would be really what would be needed. Um, we, we use the, um, the analogy of the impossible burger, um, which, which is a plant-based meat substitute that is available in every Burger King now across the US. And um, it's, it's compar it basically looks like a burger, it tastes like a burger, it costs the same as a burger, you buy it in the same you know, burger joint. And it doesn't really require any behavior change on the part of the consumer, it doesn't require anybody being willing to pay more. Um, it makes the decision as easy as possible. And that's, you know, that's what we're trying to design here, impossible burgers for, for climate. And, you know, for, for many people, that impossible burger actually tastes like what they want to eat. They're not making a kind of, they're not saying, oh, I should eat, I should eat less meat. So I'm going to sort of not enjoy my burger, right? They can, you know, the, the whole sort of value proposition of that burger is that it tastes good. Right. Yeah. I see. It's substitute, not sacrifice. Yeah. 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 So this this is interesting. So I had, you know, by scanning your documents, I had assumed you were supporting the hydrogen economy, the quote unquote hydrogen economy. And this is, you know, a, a large talking point for for people that are looking at the deep decarbonization is we have to switch all of our fuel processes over to hydrogen fuel. We need to transport hydrogen fuel in leaky containers around the world. We need to make new, replace all of our motors with hydrogen burning fuel cells. And, and yeah, it's a daunting uh, trans transfer that I couldn't see happening. So this, this gives me some hope, what you're speaking of, that this does seem much more feasible on the surface. I mean, I'd like to get dig in a little bit more into the technical details of, of, of what process you've envisioned to, to get this carbon-free synthetic fuel and, and, and produce it at volume. Uh, I don't know. Is it is it a carbon free process, or are we are you using electrolysis or methane as a as a feedstock to make hydrogen? What what? Give me maybe a little bit more details in how you're doing this and what the real CO two impact is of this process. Sure, there's really kind of two models, and and there this this could apply to other things as well, other chemicals and other um, fuel types. Uh, for example, our our synthetic hydrocarbon route, we profiled the production of aviation fuel, um, what's called Jet A. That's one high value product that there isn't currently a uh, another pathway to power uh, the, the engines on jets for, for long distance um, aviation. So but you could, for example, apply the same pathway to making methanol if you wanted to use methanol in ships or, or other things. So the basic process steps are um, advanced heat source, advanced reactor, producing heat, um, running uh, steam generators, which then provide uh, steam to st uh, traditional steam turbine technology, generating electricity, and a little bypass steam going to the next step, which is high temperature electrolysis using solid oxide technology, which takes in steam and electricity as, as inputs, which makes hydrogen very efficiently, about 40% more hydrogen per 
per kilowatt hour than a traditional low temperature electrolysis process. This is the advantage of the high temperature over, say, the direct uh, renewable source of electricity, which is the, the efficiency benefit you get from the high temperature steam. Yep. And you also get very high capacity factors, as Kirsty pointed out, right? So you get to run the process as many hours as you can keep your, your uh, reactor operating per year, you can, you can be producing at full power output. So you don't have the losses in ramping the heat up and down when the sun comes out. Yeah. And so um, then that hydrogen goes into a, a reforming process. And, and for the synthetic hydrocarbons, we, we bring in um, um, calcium carbonate, which is limestone. And we run that through a calciner, and uh, that produces CO2 and lime. This is a well-understood industrial process. This is how we produce lime and, and ultimately how we produce cement, quicklime for cement and so forth. And then the, the particular, there are several ways to source sustainable CO2. This is just one that we looked at. And uh, the... Uh, CO2 is then run through a reforming process and turned into hydrocarbons by the addition of successive stages of hydrogen. So that strips it down to carbon monoxide, and then you run that through a Fischer-Tropsch process, and that makes your fuels. And there are a number of advanced reactors for that kind of process, including uh, ones being demonstrated today that have a much more narrow spectrum of products that they produce. So you can tune them to not produce the waxes and various other things that come out of a Fischer-Tropsch reactor, but to have them just produce the, the product that you're, you're interested in. And uh, so we see a real potential to improve the, the selectivity um, uh, of that process. And then the, the, in, the, in the scenario that we developed, the lime that's produced from the calciner goes back into the, the feeder ship that brings the the limestone out to the production platform. And on the way back, that's mixed with seawater and distributed in a kind of dilute solution back into the ocean, which then creates a, a process that absorbs about 1.7 times the CO2 that um, was produced in the calcining process. Um, it, it gets turned into bicarbonate in the, in the, in the seawater and actually sequesters CO2, takes, takes CO2 and, and carbonate out of the um, carbonate ions out of the seawater and, and fixes them into uh, bicarbonate, which then sequesters that CO2 permanently. And this also has the effect of deacidifying the ocean. So the carbonate ions that are in the ocean today, which are uh, increasingly uh, plentiful due to the increasing partial pressure of CO2 in the atmosphere are the reason that the ocean is becoming more acidic. And so this would have a, this would not only sequester 1.7 times the CO2 that your, that your jet fuel is going to produce when you burn it, but it would also be reducing ocean acidification in the areas where you were distributing this. Um, wow. So that, that's a vision for how to create a, and, and, you know, this would be very scalable. So the more fuel people bought, the, the more reduction in ocean acidification we would have. And we would actually be reducing emissions, net emissions, by 
you know, because we're, we're sequestering 1.7 times the CO2 for every uh, molecule of CO2 that would be re released when the fuel is burned. So, and, and this, is, this is a very important idea. I think one of the things that we're going to have to do in the future is design a lot of our processes to be carbon negative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right now, everybody sort of thinks, oh, can we get to carbon neutrality? That's what we need. But the, the system is going to be so messy and there's going to be so much stuff kind of sneaking out of our carbon limits. And there are going to be so many countries in the world that are not really doing that great a job of clamping down on their carbon emissions that we're going to have to figure out how to do really large scale carbon negative things that are supported by our normal economy. So, you know, can we make so, for example, one of the things we're looking at now with our repowering coal campaign, which is which is about repowering existing coal plants with uh, advanced heat sources with advanced reactors. So instead of burning coal, you have an advanced reactor and that provides the heat um, for your steam generation. And so you basically get to reuse your power plant. You get to have your workers keep working there. The community gets to stay intact around that power plant and you get to reuse the existing transmission. But there's an additional interesting wrinkle, which is for all of those plants that have cooling towers, there's a technology uh, you basically do something very similar to what I was describing with the with the lime and the calcium carbonate. You basically add lime to the water that's going to the cooling tower. And as it's releasing its heat to the air that comes through the cooling tower, it's also collecting all the CO2 from that air. Mm -hmm. So you can actually turn a repowered coal plant into a carbon negative plant. Hmm. It can capture... So a one gigawatt coal plant can capture about 700,000 tons a year from the atmosphere. Wow. And at very, very low cost because you already have the cooling tower, you already have the pumps. You don't need to be adding, paying to add heat to the process because you're already rejecting heat through the cooling tower. That's what it's for. So you need to do some other processes to the water to get the CO2 out of that. And um, if you basically make hydrogen during that process, you end up with the with low cost hydrogen and the lowest cost atmospheric carbon capture that we've seen to date. So this is an example of another thing where we need to really be designing scalable infrastructure that can be carbon negative because uh, we're going to need it all. This is this is really good stuff. Um, very, very interesting. And I'm, I'm surprised it ha doesn't have a higher uh, profile in the in the discussion about climate mitigation. Is this, is this new? Is it like when? This is very new. We're breaking it on the outside. Well, thank you very here. much. <laughs> Thanks for the scoop, guys. Yeah, sure. <laughs> now, this is very cool. So you, you have this idea, you have a process on paper. How far are you to testing it out, to demonstrating it? Is there a pathway, a timeline for you? Do you have a company in mind or do, are you running a company that's going to do this? What, what's your pathway to, to actualization? Um, well, as, as we sort of mentioned, we've done a lot of work on looking at what drives the costs of, of nuclear um, projects and our Energy Technologies Institute Nuclear Cost Drivers Study is a kind of you know, landmark report on, on nuclear costs. Um, and we know that when you move from a sort of single project to a programmatic approach and then from a project-based approach ultimately into a more product-based approach, you can step down your, your cost outcomes um, you know, to achieve really 
pretty compelling low costs and um, very compressed schedules. Um, so we've sort of we've, we've spent years working on that, and um, we see a lot of potential with the advanced reactors that are coming to market this this decade to be really manufactured products. But one of the big challenges that those developers have is getting a pipeline of orders that can support the upfront investment, the capital investment that's needed in the manufacturing facility, right? So they need a lot of customers um, to order their products um, and, and you know, then make that investment in manufacturing. And so one of the things that we've been interested in is like, well, what are the potential markets? What, you know, and also what are the really, you know, tough to solve problems. One of the um, you know, biggest challenges that we see in the decarbonization agenda is, is the fact that we're still going to have two terawatts of coal operating by you know, mid-century. And if that existing coal fleet, existing or, or in, in, in the works, in the pipeline coal fleet, operates for its uh, expected operating life, then that fleet alone will swallow up the remaining power sector carbon budget. So, you know, this is this is one of the big challenges that we face. And, um, you know, right now the plan is just shut down that coal, <laughs> you know, just, you know, the, the, one of the major themes at the COP26 in, in Glasgow later this year, the big climate conference is powering past coal. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think that more than half of that uh, global fleet is on average about 14 years old and is, you know, not only providing, you know, really reliable, useful electricity uh, to support um, ec- economies and societies, but also, you know, represents a lot of jobs and um, revenues into communities. You know, we, we think that it's really unlikely, um, almost infeasible, that these that these coal plants will just be abandoned. Um mm. And there's, you know, a um, trillion dollars of, of investment that hasn't yet been recovered in that fleet as well. So, so we came to this, um, you know, we, we started looking at the potential to repower coal plants. And, you know, the technical feasibility for repowering coal plants with advanced heat sources has been pretty well established. There's a recent report by Stefan Kvist, which looks at Poland as a case study and a range of clean energy options to repower the, the Polish coal fleet. And he concludes that, you know, advanced heat sources are a really good option. Um, but, you know, what we need is not to repower a single coal plant. We actually have to figure out how to do the whole fleet. Um, so we're looking at um, a range of different advanced heat source developers um, and figuring out a uh, sort of standardized or generic building system design that these heat source vendors could all potentially supply into um, and it's it's kind of largely informed actually by um, a study that we did last year for RPE, um, looking at cost and performance requirements for advanced reactors, uh, which was intended to inform upstream design decisions by developers to ensure that they're developing you know really useful products that will have large markets. And one of the design configurations that we recommended was a separation of the nuclear island from the balance of plant via thermal energy storage. And that enables essentially the reactor to just run all the time at its, you know, 95% plus capacity factor, Mm -hmm. but either generate directly onto the grid or 
charge the battery essentially which is the thermal energy storage and then discharge the um, from the battery when electricity prices are high in other words when the wind's not blowing the sun's not shining and that becomes a really flexible really uh, really sort of complementary um, energy system that's very complementary to high penetrations of variable renewables in future electricity grids and very economic for the plant itself. And so Bill Gates and the, uh, the Natrium joint venture, TerraPower and GE Hitachi, yesterday they announced they're, um, they're intending to build their, their reactor at, in Wyoming, which is, I, I believe, the, the U.S.'s largest coal-producing state, mm -hmm. um, on a retired coal site which is really fantastic. So that kind of but plays really right into your strategy. Yeah. So what's really interesting is that if you if you take that separated nuclear island and instead of attaching it to a conventional power island, you bolt it on to a former coal plant, you stop burning coal, you get rid of the coal boiler, and you have essentially a new so a new source of steam. Um you can replace the heat source for the coal plant, keep a lot of those jobs, keep all of those other benefits, um, all without emissions. Everything downstream from the burning section is the same. Yeah, no more. It's the end of combustion. Which, which also um, makes for a very low-cost plant when you're done. So um, we believe that for a typical coal-fired station, the converted plant, including recovering the capital for the conversion project, will be the cost of energy from that plant will be lower after the conversion than before. Wow. So you take a depreciated coal plant, which is not recovering any more capital, and you repower it with an advanced reactor and you end up with a lower cost of energy afterwards. This is going to be transformative because right now we you know, what happens is coal plants have, have relatively high fixed operating costs. A large amount of that is due, due to pollution control and fuel handling and fuel purchasing. And then when you reduce the, the runtime, you know, if you, if you have more and more periods of low priced power in the market when solar is producing and setting the price or when wind is producing and setting the price, coal plants tend to cycle down or cycle off at during those times. And that reduces the capacity factor, which means that you have to recover your fixed costs over fewer hours. And so your cost of energy goes up. When, when you replace the, those processes with an advanced heat source, with an advanced reactor, you end up with uh, a plant that has much lower marginal costs and will probably run all the time. And if not, we'll run the reactor will run all the time and you'll use the thermal energy storage to cycle the plant up and down into the high priced hours, which makes it, by the way, and a very good complement to renewable energy being built. So it basically makes that plant into something that is an economic, economically viable and climate viable complement to the renewables that might be built near that plant or in that power market. And that's really critical. Um, the solution to making renewables reliable can't be burning lots of gas. That's what's happening in New York. That's what's happening in Germany. That's, that's happening everywhere that they shut down nuclear. 
Yeah, it's the sort of not so hidden secret about the renewable uh, intensive strategies is that they basically keep gas around for a really long time, uh, possibly forever. So you've basically um, invented a, a steam bypass, a valuable steam bypass for nuclear, uh, advanced nuclear that allows it to be load following to support renewable infrastructure uh, and decarbonize the oceans and support uh, internal combustion and deep decarbonization of thermal processes. Yeah, I would agree with all that except for the invented part. We're done. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's so. Yeah. Now we just need to scale it up, Al. A lot of the work that we do. I mean, we've talked about sort of the technology and the concepts so far, but a lot of our work is also about business models and how to make things scalable from an investment perspective. How to fit them into the strategies of existing players how to motivate players to move into these new spaces and well, that's the um that's the catalyst bit and the um the praxis bit <laughs> which is the theory into action i can imagine a lot of people wanting to get on board this so you know my listeners are, are definitely pro uh nuclear pro climate mitigation how do we help how do how do people get involved is there a, a a grassroots movement here that people can help out with this or is it uh... we have on our website we have a lot of publications and a lot of these things are explained uh, or laid out and we have we've even tried to kind of get pictures produced to make these things um, kind of easy to communicate and to make them kind of concrete for from a visualization perspective and and you know every every community has um, opportunities to talk about these solutions and to begin to kind of broaden the discussion about the kind of solutions that we need in order to fully to, to solve the climate challenge in a, in a, in a sensible, feasible and, and low risk way. And so, you know, I think familiarizing yourself with that thinking, that's the kind of first level of, of what we would offer. The, the second is that we really need to, you know, there's a lot of renewables versus nuclear kind of uh, chit chat that people engage in both in the renewables community and in the nuclear community. And I think one of the things that really attracted me to working with Kirsty is that she has this very system level view that she promotes, which is that what we all want is the benefits of a clean energy system. And we need to achieve that system in the most cost-effective, scalable, and low-risk pathway. And to do that, and, and we don't know what that is today. Like when people present all these models that say, oh, we can do it this way or we can do it that way, those are all ideas. They usually are just focusing on the economics and they're not focusing on all the feasibility questions that you were you were noticing um, and and talking about earlier. So we have to all recognize that there's a lot of risk and that we need, this is like saving for retirement. You don't put it all in Tesla and say, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that, you know, that it's going to be work. You distribute it around, you, you anticipate that there might be currency changes or that real estate might go up and down or whatever. You think about it as a portfolio and you try to have a high confidence strategy that you'll actually get to where you need to be at the time that you need it. And that's what we're not doing today as, as a community, as, 
as citizens. We're not demanding that there be kind of a level of feasibility and that we think about what the risks are in our in our transition strategies and that we come up with clever approaches to addressing those risks. And that's something that all citizens and all stakeholders and all people who care about this can do is begin to get educated about that. We also have a webinar, Kirsty, in which we talk about the risks to the transition. And I would recommend that people I, I forget, is that on our Lucid Catalyst website or is this is that on the TBI website? But that's really worth looking at, too. OK, that, that sounds great. So we're getting to the end of our time slot here. And I really appreciate you folks coming on to, to give me this scoop that I'm going to now publicize to the world. Uh, do you have any final comments you'd like to, to make to our listeners? Um, yeah, I guess I would say that this is a very important decade that we're in. And the the 20s are going to be the decade where we we basically either set ourselves on a path to being able to solve, fundamentally solve the climate problem or where we don't. And where the direction that we're going now, where we focus only on one approach to solving the problem, which is renewable energy, is not enough. Um, it's not that we shouldn't be building renewables. As I said earlier, we have to build a huge amounts of all the clean energy sources. The problem is the insistence that that's the only thing we need to do. That is what is incredibly dangerous, and I would say even pernicious. And we need to expand the range of things that we're doing. We need to really understand what the risks are with these different pathways and build additional pathways that don't have the same risks. And if we don't do that in this decade, it's going to be very grim in the future. And if we do do it, this is a very, what we, what you've sort of begun to get a sense of today in this show is that we have scalable solutions that can really help solve this problem. And so this problem is resolvable. It's just that we need to reframe the way we're approaching this and, and include this broader range of solutions and really think hard about how those are going to be scaled up and deployed and financed and so forth. Um, and if we do that this decade, we, we are setting ourselves up for success and for a prosperous and, uh, you know, stable climate. And, and part, of, part of that is going to be about, you know, creating the political mandate. And, you know, that's what everyone that's listening today can help do which is really start having these conversations have these conversations with your friends and your colleagues and write to your um you know political representatives um and demand this because that's what will create the political mandate that's what gives our politicians confidence um to think differently to act differently and ultimately that is what will lead to investor confidence that will also be necessary um to enable this change um so it's it's really profound and important. Um, and, you know, Al, uh, thank you for hosting us um, to give us this chance to have this conversation with you. Um, thank you. Uh, and uh, we're really, you know, we're really pleased to be able to have been here and, and contributed. And, and thank you for your, you know, your great, your great contribution also. Oh, thank you for coming on to the show. Uh, I really appreciate talking with you guys. It's been really interesting. Uh, and I can't wait to put this on the air and, and hear the feedback from our listeners. So, so 
great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.